Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Julie Yuen Chen, Professor of Chinese Studies at University of Helsinki, Finland. Join me today to talk about Harvard University Press' new book, The China Question 2, Critical Insights into the U.S.-China Relations, is Maria Adele Karai from New York University, Shanghai. She's Assistant Professor of Global China Studies at NYU Shanghai. She specializes in history of international law in East Asia, and she is actually also author of another book. The book is called Sovereignty in China, a genealogy of a concept since 1840. And I think she can tell you a bit more about her exciting new website that will come out very soon as well. Well, but you know, let us focus on the book, the Harvard University book. So she edited this book with Jennifer Rudolph and Michael Zongyi, two very established scholars based in the United States. Today, she will talk on behalf of these two editors as well as authors of this book. So I understand that this book is actually the second book. That's why it's called The China Question 2. Perhaps Adela can tell us a bit more about the first book. So I understand the first book, The China Questions, it really was a success and it offered a lot of new insight from top China experts explaining key issues shaping today's U.S. and China relations. So I'm really wondering, you know, why there is a second book Adela will explain to us. Now, welcome, Adela. Could you briefly introduce yourself and then we can go into the details of your book. Thank you so much, Julie, for having me here today. I think I haven't really too much to add about my intro. So I'm an assistant professor in global China studies at New York University, Shanghai, and have broad interest in China international relations, international law. Today is the official day of the launch of our research initiative called Mapping Global China uh, with a team of NYU Shanghai people. And the goal of the project uh, is to provide data, the most comprehensive data set of Chinese overseas investment. And so we collected a lot, a lot of different uh, projects data and merged them. Uh, we had uh, some team uh, members that collected further data and the results are available online. I'm happy to share also the name of the website that is mapglobalchina.com. Thank you. So mapglobalchina.com, that is uh, the new website that is just launched by Edda and her colleagues. But now we go back to the book, right? Could you tell us a bit about the background of creating this book? Maybe a bit of like the story behind the scenes. As you mentioned, the China Questions 1 was edited by my other co-editor, Jennifer Rudolph and Michael Sony, and it was about uh, China, critical insights about China. We like very much the format uh, of uh, um, asking questions and, hand, and then having uh, a short essay. We had this idea of uh, using the same format of the China Questions 2, that was uh, China Questions 1, that was very successful, and uh, tackle a different issue, U.S.-China relation. When we started thinking about the book was 2020 during the pandemic. And uh, of course, back then as now, the relationship between US 
in China was very tense. And we felt that the public, the general public, didn't really have uh, the necessary understanding and information, access to information that was a bit more balanced than the debates available. That is, it was very polarized. And actually, it was uh, bipartisan consensus about China threat. Uh, but we wanted to bring in academics and distill their knowledge for the broader public. The, that's how it started. And that was really the goal of making sure that the public was better informed about this complex relationship between US and China and making the public understand that China is not a monolith, but is very complex. The disengagement is not uh, the only option. There are many different uh, options uh, for the relationship between US and China. Well, thank you for the great efforts. Indeed, this is a really a hurdle that many scholars try to overcome. Well, you mentioned the first book and the second book. So I guess the issues covered in these two books are not exactly the same. Is that how it differs? The key difference, of course, is the theme, the topic that U.S.-China relations, the China questions choose specifically cover U.S.-China relations. And another difference is that we wanted to broaden the pool of uh, authors. China question once it's uh, very much uh, centered around Harvard Fairbank Center. The author that wrote the contributions were from Harvard University. This time around, we have a more diverse pool of uh, scholars and uh, we were not limited to scholars based at Harvard University, but we really tried to get the best leading scholars dealing with certain issues and themes. So it's wider in terms of the authorship and also the themes that are covered, right? Exactly. Well, yeah. Could you just give us maybe one or two examples of the known scholars in the book? They're all well-known scholars. Uh, they're also emerging scholars and, uh, again, diverse uh, pool of uh, authors. For instance, John Pomfret, Lee's Economy, Wang Gungyu, Victor Shi, Ryan Haas. I mean, so many. I guess like I can just uh, list uh, the names. Uh, Susan Thornton. They're all really the who's who of U.S.-China relations. Even those that are not yet senior scholars, the more junior ones, they're on the right track to become uh, stellar and famous scholars uh, in the future. Well, thank you. I do notice there are more junior scholars, so it's nice to have a, a well mixture of the different kind of scholars. Uh, I haven't had a chance to read some chapters of uh, this book. As Adele, you have mentioned, these are more like smaller essays. And now, well, I wonder if I can ask some questions about perhaps three chapters. There is one chapter that talks about China's role as in the big tech regulation. I wonder if, if you can tell us some big takeaway from this important chapter. So the chapter was written by Winston Ma. Uh, and the title of the chapter, of course, is a question, is framed as a question, has China positioned itself as a leader in big tech regulation? Winston Ma goes against the shared wisdom about China, that China, uh, there is this belief that uh, China advances in artificial intelligence uh, relies on the fact that uh, is unregulated. And so this big tech can do whatever they want. However, that's not the case. As uh, the author proves by discussing all the new regulations that came about and the last uh, uh, personal information protection law that came out uh, in 2021 is in a way the Chinese response to, uh, to the European Union general data protection regulation. Winston presents a much more nuanced uh, picture of China with regard to big tech regulations. And also he mentioned at the end how US and China aligns right now in terms of trying to tame this uh, this big tech 
right? And their uh, uncompetitive behaviors, especially re related to user data. And in this sense, uh, he argues that US and China could collaborate to develop a regulatory framework on big tech. And uh, this together with environmental issues uh, is one of those big global challenges where the US and China could and should come together, despite all the animosities between the, the two. And uh, this will also help if they come together and they establish uh, a, a regulatory framework on big tech that is more global. This will help uh, ensure that the new technology will work for the good of ordinary people and that we do not lose the momentum for this global tech development. Yes, I personally find this chapter also very revealing because it actually indicates in the United States, the development in this regard is a bit slow about personal information protection. So I learned a lot. It's true. I think this is something common good. It's beyond the countries. So importantly, we can see there's an area where U.S. and China can definitely cooperate. Exactly. Yeah. And it's actually it's very important for them to collaborate right now. And it's also Biden's top priority right now. So they really align in these issues. There are still a matter which both China and the U.S. can collaborate. It seems that all the book chapters, are they all organized in a way that they start with a question and then the authors have to answer? I should have addressed uh, before when you asked me about uh, this, uh, the, the reasons for this book. And uh, we found very useful as a format. And this is the same format of the China Questions 1. I mean, it's not one, but the original China Questions. Having one question that the general public is interested in. And then having an academic that has spent decades maybe doing research on that theme. And how can this author transmit this knowledge in 2,000 words. It's something that is easy to read for the general audience. It's a good exercise, like for writing an essay. Also for authors, I think, also for academics, I think is a very good exercise. And I think it's an exercise that authors should do more often. Try to speak to also a broader public, engage the broader public, especially for issues related to U.S.-China relations, that uh, it's so important to have an informed conversation. And academics, I think, should become more as uh, public intellectual in this uh, context. Here comes another chapter uh, or another question, and it's quite big, and I think everybody wants to know the answer. Is China a challenge to U.S. national security? Yeah, so this is a chapter written by Oriana Skymastro, and uh, she looks uh, at the direct and direct ways in which uh, PRC poses a threat to U.S. national security. And what is interesting that she discusses at the very beginning is that overall, the Chinese influence uh, uh, over U.S., uh, it's negative, it's malign. However, there is not, not really a military, directly a military threat at least uh, domestically. And China has uh, used mostly economic and political tools rather than military or nuclear tools to influence uh, the United States abroad. Another very interesting point is that the degree of China threat depends on how the US defines its national interest and its national security. And so this has not been fixed and has evolved from a more defensive to be much broader and to include also U.S. influence abroad. So these are the two important points, I think, that the chapter makes. And then she identified uh, different categories of China threat, China direct threat to the U.S. homeland, where basically the author argues that China has not military capability or desire to invade or occupy the United States territory, 
but it can still disrupt uh, uh, domestic institutions and reduce the freedom of actions uh, of US citizens, governments, and businesses. And this it can be done through unconventional means such as cyber, counter space, and nuclear weapons in case of war times, but also through coercive activities such as uh, political interference and espionage. And this, for instance, happened in 2020 during Biden campaign. Oriana mentioned how Microsoft detected Chinese attempts to hack Biden campaign affiliates. But also, I think there are other issues that she mentioned, like uh, how China has used economic coercion to kind of uh, reduce U.S. influence abroad, like when it punished uh, the NBA for speaking against human rights. And uh, this limits partly the right of free speech. This is very important for U.S. Uh, national interest and security in some ways. Another aspect that uh, she discussed is also how China is not necessarily, again, a conventional military threat to U.S. homeland, but is is different for American bases uh, in Asia. The U.S. has over 100,000 military personnel stationed in Asia, and China can threaten uh, the, the life even of these people through conventional military means and non-conventional ones. And then another big issue is, of course, all the territorial disputes that China has with Japan and Philippines, to which U U.S. is very, uh, is historically attached, but also the hot, hot question is, of course, Taiwan, that will bring US and China into a hot war. So she warns us about uh, these uh, issues, these threats and uh, future challenges. I noticed there's another chapter, which is kind of unique in my view, because it focuses a lot about literature and writing. Is it on purpose you want to have a literature chapter? <laughs> Yes, uh, and I'm so glad uh, we had also a literature chapter, and I think the author did a, a terrific job in making literature relevant uh, in U.S.-China relations. Why that? Because uh, he discusses like uh, four uh, post Mao Zedong writers, leading writers, uh, Wang Ai, Mao Yang, uh, Yu Hua, and Liu Zhongyu, and basically he argues that. Uh, this work, in a way, uh, is, is a mirror of a nation and tells us a bit more about what Chinese really think, especially at a time when the political culture now in China tries really to homogenize and censor what people think. And so these authors that are discussed by Zhang Shudong bring about a touch of reality, right, of a diverse reality. Um, and I want to... Uh, actually read one little passage uh, because I think he's also a great writer so the language I cannot really reuse the same language just to give a sense and I think readers should really also try and uh, read this chapter where basically he said that their freedom irreverence and subversiveness uh, undermine the suffocating self-censorship stifling conformism and the for formulate media coverage about China and then the last sentence that I think is just so beautiful, like a spinning gyro rotating on an invisible axis, their work points to an aesthetically determined North Star, constant and freestanding, all the while attentive to, to and capable of absorbing the sound and fury, sights and laughter around the single mind and movement. So I think this is just very beautiful and it really brings our attention to the people the struggle that people, the, the real life of Chinese people that is very different from what 
media coverage provide. And it's a very beautiful chapter that really encourages us to go a bit beyond, read great Chinese. And these authors, I've read a lot of their works are are fantastic. It's just beautiful. And it's true. It's it's human, basically. That's what uh, unifies uh, Chinese American, Italian, whatever, our human nature and our struggle kind of trying to find meanings in, in this complex world. I guess the book also adds the some kind of cross-disciplinary taste, you know, to this book. Well, thank you so much for introducing those chapters. Well, you kind of mentioned already that you are Italian, right? So I'm just very curious that being a European or Italian working in the United States, you know, looking at the politics now, do you see any difference or similarities between Americans and Europeans in general or Italians more specifically when it comes to the China issue? So, of course, we have different histories behind us. And Italy is a small country and European Union tries to be a new normative power globally but of course it's kind of uh, in between this uh, big power of china and the us uh, from an official point of view the european union has increasingly aligned with the united states uh, about uh, the sense that china is a threat is an existential threat to our values to the way we are but then of course there are many issues in unifying European countries because each country has its own interests, economic interests in in maintaining and preserving a certain relationship with China. And so I don't know how this language, this strong language that echoes the US uh, national security statements, uh, China being uh, a threat uh, to the United States uh, and to Western values, uh, would really find any substance uh, on, on the ground. But there's a lot of concern in Europe about China and uh, they try to unify, to create a unified strategy to tackle China, this uh, huge power that basically is present everywhere. And there, there's a lot of work going on, a lot of interest uh, on, on China. I think that the European Union could serve as a middleman in a way between US and the, and China, but I don't know whether it would be successful in doing that. Also because it's aligning more and more to, uh, with the US. Yeah, and particularly after the Ukrainian war, I think it's even so. Yeah, the Ukraine, I think both the pandemic and the Ukraine war changed further. So there was already a change before the pandemic and the Ukraine war. So there was this awakening of European Union about, oh my God, there's China. China is everywhere. We need to, we need to have a strategy. We need to redefine our relationship with China. Also because China had the 16 plus one, then now I think it's 40, 14 plus one that tries to divide and rule uh, Central and Eastern country vis-a-vis uh, Europe, uh, European Union. So I think that the, the pandemic exposed uh, our reliance on China or the supply chain. And now there is uh, a lot of debate about diversification in the European Union. So end or limit our over-reliance on China to production, basically anything, even the energy, the green energy, we totally depend on China. Uh, but also then the, the Ukraine war, what the Xi Jinping has basically not uh, condemned the Russia invasion of Ukraine. And then this was also another awakening for, for the European Union. But even within European Union, we think, again, as European Union is something unified, but it's far from it. Even in Italy, you have a lot of people that uh, supported Russia and they, they still do not condemn Russia, Russian actions. So even there, we need to be careful, right? It's not that all European, there are other people that actually, they totally agree with uh, Russia. 
Italy is an interesting case itself, right? Oh, well, well we are not going into the Italian politics. <laughs> so, what, But we have to come back to our book. So I'm still going to talk about this new book, The China Question too. Well, I'm curious. Of course, the book is written in English. So your audience is American, perhaps also Western audience, whoever can read English. But how about Chinese? That's partly, I, I wouldn't say a limitation, but like that's how we decided the book to be. And uh, the target readership is American, not even European. I mean, it can be European, but we really thought this book uh, for an American educated public that wants to learn more about uh, US-China relations. And uh, we hope that this format uh, will be used in a new book Maybe I we we would love that some Chinese will do China question three or four, looking at U.S.-China relations uh, for a Chinese public. But China questions once was translated in Chinese, and so we also hope that this book might be translated in Chinese. But the goal was really the target audience was uh, American readership. So let me uh, repeat again about this new book. It's called the China Questions Two: Critical Insights into U.S.-China Relations. It's published in 2022 by Harvard University Press. And a bit of summary of this book. So it's basically talking about uh, U.S.-China relations and perhaps we should move away from this kind of zero-sum thinking and to see where the areas can, we might have conflict, but also areas where we might actually have cooperations. Thank you very much, Adele, for sharing your insights with us. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast with me, Judy Yuen Chen, and then Maria Adele Karai from New York University, Shanghai. Her co-edited book, The China Question 2, Critical Insights into U.S.-China Relations, is published by Harvard University this year in 2022. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia Podcast.